So I'm going to begin with a little story. Uh, not an absolute, it's a true story. came from a reliable retired councilman about a local politician who not only championed but also received high accolades for their work against drunk driving. And lo and behold, one night a couple of police officers pulled somebody over and it was this politician who was intoxicated. So what they did is they put this person in the back of their own car, kept them low so nobody could see. Knowing that she had political clout, they called an associate. The associate came, right, took this person away. Then another person came, drove the car away. But here is a person who championed against drunk driving yet was intoxicated. My question is, what went through the minds of the police officers about the integrity and credibility of this politician? And the only thing I could say is what they saw was hypocrisy in its most perfect form. Because here's a person championing someone, and there they were, drunk as a skunk, driving a car. And to which one's behavior does not conform. And isn't it interesting that the Greek, original Greek word for uh, hypocrisy or hypocrite is actor. Someone putting on an act, being what they aren't, or showing to be something than what they really are. And as we begin to look at the subject this morning and apply it for no better choice of words, when we apply it to our own religiosity, if you will, we will be challenged, challenged to evaluate and really look at the motives behind what we do. What is at the root of what we do? Is it to be a hypocrite? Is it to bring glory and honor to self? Or as Christians, are we really looking just to bring glory and honor to God? Amen? Are we living the life that Jesus has called us to, or are we putting on a facade once we get outside the four walls here? Dress in the Sermon on the Mount. So please turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to go through verses 1 to 18, because they're all related, and we're going to kind of camp here this morning. That's why there's only a few scripture verses up there today. So Matthew 6, 1 to 18. And listen, as we delve into this, it's a subject that we must be attentive of, we must be aware of, and why? Because of who we belong to and who we represent. And also, look, we're going out there to a lost world. And the last thing a lost world wants to see is a hypocritical Christian. Amen? A world is already critical of Christians. It's critical of the Word of God, and, it's the critic, and they're critical of the Savior himself. So we, more than any group, must walk the walk of the talk we talk. Do you hear me? Because they're looking at us. Do we err and stubble? Yes, but they're looking to see that consistency in our lives. We, um, there is no room for hypocrisy in the lives of a Christian. Amen? It can be, do damage to us. And why? Because hypocrisy will come out of pride that wants to show itself that we're more than who we really say we are. It will also damage those around us who want to come to Christ. If they don't see the real thing, why would they want to come to the Savior we serve? And more than anything, it's going to damage the name and reputation of all man just doing his thing and not living the life. And in these passages, the Lord's going to deal with, really, with acts of righteousness that were fundamental, if you will, to, the Jewish, to Jewish piety and righteousness. And these acts of righteousness that Jesus will address are almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. But let me explain something. Though he's only addressing these three, the principles behind what he's addressing really go out to all acts of righteousness, if you will, anything we do in the name of the Lord. And what Jesus will do is first describe 
and then rebuke how the religious, especially the Pharisees, did these things to exalt their own piety, to look religious to the people. And they also did these things thinking that as they did them, they'd be acts of righteousness that would lead them into a greater communion with God or to be found righteous before God. And in both instances, God sees it as nothing. If we want to elevate our own piety or if we try to work to come into a right relationship with God, God does not view it as anything at all, as we'll see in the scriptures. The second thing Jesus will speak to is the limited results produced by such pseudo-piety. He's going to say, in all three cases, you've already received your reward in full on this side of eternity. And then third, he'll give a description how we're to do these things unto the Lord. What is the essence of our prayer? What is the essence of our almsgiving? What is the essence of our fasting? Is to bring glory and honor to him. All right, so let's open up uh, with verse 1. It says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Two little words. Be careful. Be is in the present imperative, which means that consistently we have to be careful. We must be careful. We need to be continually and cautiously aware. And aware of what? Listen carefully. Aware of being cautious of not practicing our righteous acts in order to gain the recognition of men and the praise of men. Amen? And I know I'm not supposed to use my arm, but I'm Italian. All righty? We won't want to lift what we do when we try to present ourselves and get the praise of men. We're stroking our own egos. And instead of bringing glory and honor to God, we're looking to bring glory and honor to self, and we're not to do that. All our glory, all that we have, should bring glory and honor to him. Every gift, every talent, everything that we have comes from him. And he should receive the glory, amen? And therefore, by our motives and actions, we are in essence bringing glory to ourselves, which we don't want to do. And what does it say in the word? That we've already received our reward. And there'll be no reward from our Father in heaven because we're doing to lift up self instead of lift. It's not stating that we don't do acts of righteousness. These acts of righteousness or any acts of righteousness because we're called to be salt and light to the world. We're supposed to give. We're supposed to pray for others. We're supposed to be ambassadors of Christ to others. But it's the motives behind why we do and say that the Lord is looking at this morning. We're called to meet the needs of others. We're called to meet the needs within the body of Christ and beyond. And if you study Romans, we're even called to what? Bless our enemies, to help those who are in need. Read the Good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, yet what does he do? The Samaritan helps the Jewish man, amen? Because that's what we're called to do. And we're also called to fast. When Jesus addresses the crowd later in Matthew, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. We are called. They fasted in the Old Testament, Day of Atonement, etc. There are times of a call for fasting. The church, first century church fasted, and we are called to fast also. Amen? And listen, we're also called to pray individually and corporately. Jesus was a man of prayer. He got away solitary to a mountainside and prayed. He prayed with his disciples. And what about the early church? What were they doing in the upper room in Acts 2.42? They were praying. And what happened? The Holy Spirit descended on him, and the church was birthed. Amen? We're supposed to be and called to be people of prayer. It's common through the Old Testament. It's common through the New Testament. 
To put it very simply, church, we are called to emulate the life of Christ. Amen? And live according to the Word of God. It calls us to pray. It calls us to fast. It calls us to give. It calls us to do acts of righteousness. Yes? All right? But, and there's the big but, we are not called to bring glory and honor to ourselves, but we're called to bring glory and honor to God through our acts of righteousness and to bless others. Look at Jesus. Let me read you a couple of scriptures here that are up there. Jesus says this in John 14, 13. And I tell you, whatever you ask in my name, so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. And in John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may what? Glorify you. What does Jesus do throughout his ministry? He brings glory and honor to the Father. He doesn't even receive the accolades for himself, the Son of God. He's doing as unto the Father to bring him glory. And look what it says about his disciples in John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So when we emulate Christ, when we live a Christ-like life, who gets the glory? God. Because they see that we are true disciples of the Lord Jesus. Very simply, as the Lord's disciples, listen, we are to be and to do so that God himself is glorified in and through our lives. And what Jesus is looking at here is, what are the motives? What is the motive of our hearts when we do these things? And that's what he's going to address in these things this morning. So let's go on now and get into these uh, specific acts of righteousness. Look at verse 2 in Matthew chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And again, we see that Jesus doesn't say, if you give, he says, when you give. So it's a calling on us as Christians to bless people out of our abundance. And even if not out of our abundance, say we had one loaf of bread, could we not share half with others who are in need? We absolutely could. But now he's going to point to the motive. He says, don't announce it with trumpets. And why? Because that's what the hypocrites do. They try to bring attention to themselves. And there's two things to look up. One that is obvious and one not so obvious unless you like look back at the times. He says, uh, don't blow the trumpet. In other words, don't go, I'm giving. Look and pat ourselves that people can see that we're giving. That people recognize you and you get the glory of men and the praises of men. All right? It says, when we do so, give to the needy so that we are not to boast or bring attention to ourselves when meeting the needs of others. For that's what the hypocrites do. And he says, They've already received their reward in full. They got their praise from men, but they're not going to get their praise from God because God's not going to reward them because they're looking to bring glory and honor to themselves. Amen? And the second, this was great as I, I read through this. The second reason is, you see all those things in the back, those offering boxes? Well, they had like, you know, a rectangular offering box, but then out of the top, they had two like shofar-looking things, trumpets, they look like trumpets, wide at the top, narrow into the coffer, if you will. And the reason being is that when you walked in, you could see them, so you knew where to give. But the other reason, okay, is that uh, oh, so nobody could actually stick their hand in the till and pull the coins out. So that's why they went wide for the top, shallow to the bottom. I guess, you know, man, man's heart is man's heart. Um, and the reason, they, and it, so they were recognizable. So, Pastor, how does this, what does this have to do with us? 
the shofar box, that, that's shaped like trumpets and blowing the trumpets. Well, what people would do is, remember, they didn't have dollar bills back then, they had coins. So when someone wanted to give a lot, they'd throw them in the face of that trumpet. You'd hear, you ever hear a coin shout? And people would be like, whoa, look how much that guy's giving. They would hear what's going on. And what were they doing? They were bringing attention to themselves. So he's saying, don't blow the trumpets, don't throw your coins in there to rattle that thing so that people say, whoa, look what I'm giving this morning. All righty? So they'd make a lot of noise. In both these cases, if, if their giving was with the wrong motive, the Lord states that they've sought to be honored by men and they will receive their reward in full. Like the hypocritical almsgiver, right? They go out and they give, and what? God does not recognize because it's from the wrong motive of their heart. All right, they got their applause. The actor got his applause from men, but he will not get his applause from God. And listen, it goes on and says, we should be so discreet in our giving. Look what it says in verses 3 to 4a. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And the idea is this. The two hands are counterparts of each other in the body, are they not? That when you give with your right hand, your left hand doesn't even know that this is going on. And you know the reason? So that if it knew, it might do one of these. I've got to switch hands. So don't tap yourself on the back by giving. That it's only acknowledged by God and not by others nor by himself. And listen, the, um, the result of discreet giving is found in verse 4b. It says, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Family, if we humbly give and with compassion, we give that's motiva- motivated by the needs we see in others and desire to bring glory and honor to God. It's the Lord who will be pleased with us. And he may reward us temporally or eternally. But we leave that with him. And you know what one of the greatest blessings is? That he holds back the devourer. Come on, guys. We can drive a car for how many years you're driving that thing, Jordan? Right? The washing machine doesn't go dead. Things seem to last, but God holds back the devourer as we're faithful and we meet the needs of others. Amen? Amen. Does he have to? No, but that's the kind of God we serve. And that's why I have down here, I have to add this. We don't give looking to get. We don't give looking to get, whether it be a spiritual blessing, a temporal blessing. No, we give to meet the needs of others so that they see the love of Christ, even if they don't know where the blessing is coming from. They see God's hand at work through the giving of others, and it brings glory and honor to our God in heaven. Wow, I don't know those people, and they were willing to bless me. Why? Because we belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? All right, let's go on to our second act of righteousness that the Lord discusses, and that's prayer or praying. Now, I could go on forever and ever about prayer and praying, but I'll behave myself. So look at verse 5. It says, when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. There's that line again. The hypocrite receives his reward in full. He gets the praises of men, but not acknowledged by God. I'd rather have God acknowledge me than men. Amen? And family, let us stress again that Jesus doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. Acknowledging the fact that the Lord's people will seek him in prayer, both individually and corporately individually and corporately. Did you hear me, church? All right? Prayer is one of the greatest gifts given to the church, to God's people. 
and it's waning and waning and waning away for most congregations. We, finite man, we get to commune with the infinite God. That's mindless, that we commune with the creator of the universe. Prayer is essential. If you want to mature in Christ, then prayer is essential to your repertoire. Do you hear me? Because you're communing with God. You're speaking to the Holy One. And He speaks to us in His Word and through our hearts as He illuminates truth and guides us. Amen? Prayer, individual and corporate prayer, is essential to the well-being of the local assembly and to the universal church. If I, raised you, if I asked for a raise of hands, which I won't, how many people, people pray for missionaries, for the persecuted church, right? We pray universally for our brothers and sisters. So it's important for the universal church and also important for the local church. And Jesus doesn't, again, doesn't question our call to pray, but he questions the motives behind we're praying. And we have to look at the crowds that Jesus is addressing here. And we'll see a couple of things. He's addressing mostly a Jewish audience. Now, let me tell you something. The Jews were ardent in their prayers. They were ardent in their prayers. And I could give you example after example, but I'm not going to bore you. Let me just give you a few. Twice a day, they were supposed to repeat the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. They were supposed to do it before sunrise and at sunset. And then even when they went to a meal, like we, we, we say grace, they were supposed to pray. But there were specific prayers for what they were going to eat. And then also at the end of the Sabbath, they were supposed to repeat three prayers. Then every day they were supposed to repeat 18 benedictions. I wish Marty was here, called the Tefillah, where they went through 18 different prayers in the course of the day. So they were prayer warriors. But there was a problem. There was a problem. Listen, unfortunately... What had happened is that the prayer life of the Jewish community became a standard practice of ritualistic prayers that were often during times of the day in prayer, saying this prayer. And what happened is this. Religi religiosity and ritualism replaced communion and intimacy. It's when our prayer becomes ritualistic. It replaces the communion that God desires with us. And there's two things we have to look at here. The first is that Jesus uh, addresses concerning the hypocrite, the actor who puts on a performance. It's the guy who goes into the synagogue, the temple, the church, the prayer meeting. Oh, God! Great King James Version in voice. I've come to pray! And goes into this eloquent prayer, throwing dust in the air, beating their chest. And all that does is bring attention to them instead of really glorifying God. Oh, wow, look at that brother or sister pray. They must be in a great relationship with the Lord. And all they're doing is bringing attention to themselves. Right now, I would say that Joan Nietzsche is home, quiet in her room, and she's a prayer warrior. Sister Luciana, a prayer warrior. Probably home, 96, 97 years old, couldn't make it out of the church, but a prayer warrior. And though it's not bellowing from the halls of this place, God hears her prayers. Amen? Praise God. And the, why the person does this is so that we will take notice. And again, like the hypocritical almsgiver, the hypocritical prayer person already receives their reward in full. They get the prayer, right? And now let's go on and look at verse 6. It states this. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, listen carefully, Jesus isn't condemning public prayer. Jesus prayed in public. He wants the church to pray in public. But he's saying, let your prayer life from your prayer closet filter out into your public prayer life. Do you hear me? 
We have to go out beyond the confines of our prayer closet in order to pray. All right? Jesus wants us to pray for other people. He's not worried about a location. He's more concerned about our motivation. Do you hear me? Why we're praying. And to challenge any prospect of getting any praise from them, Jesus says, go into your prayer closet. And as I studied this, at the prayer closet, what it was, this, this word room or prayer room, was basically you go into a building and you go in a room where there are no windows or doors. So it's, see if I get it right, Christina, two adios, you and God, that's it. That's all who's in the prayer closet or the prayer room so that you and God commune together and it's not for the public to see. Amen? It should be a time of intimate communication. When we get in our prayer room, a time of intimate communication between us and our Creator, the secret place where we can meet with our Heavenly Father and speak to Him without any interference. Get up early in the morning before the phone rings. Shut your cell phone off. Shut the TV off and get alone with God and pray. If anybody's seen War Room, that wonderful idea of going into that closet and just crying out before God. Do you realize what prayer is? Why we can pray? How we can pray? Because the Son of God came and the symbol in the temple when that curtain was ripped in two. It opened the way that we can go before the Father's throne boldly as His children. The Son of God came so we could be reconciled. It's a gift of God. What an opportunity. We can go before the Almighty and commune with Him. Finite beings that can commune with an infinite God. It's a privilege. And I don't know why we poo-poo it and put it aside as something that might happen quick in the morning or the end of the day or when tragedy hits. Then we'll find ourselves praying. All of a sudden, we'll see the prayer room on Monday nights fill up. As soon as the person's tragedy's over, they disappear. No, God wants us to pray. And he opened the way through the shed blood of his son on Calvary's hill. Amen? He wants to be prayer warriors. And listen, when we're alone with God, then what we see, if we really get in our prayer closet and we get close to draw close to him, our desire is to become more like Christ, our desire is to pray for others because we see the heartache and the needs, then what's going to happen is when we come to corporate prayer, that's just going to flow over. It's going to flow into our public and corporate prayer that we have a heart for God, that we want to see the needs of others met. So what we do in that alone time with God will flow over into our corporate prayer. If you're not spending time with the Lord alone, how difficult it will be to come and spend time with your brothers and sisters praying. It's going to be awkward. So get that alone time with prayer and then come to corporate prayer. Amen? Praise God. And now the second concern Jesus alludes to concerning prayer is repetition and repetitiveness of standardized prayer because it evolves into nothing more than ritualistic religious behavior and it makes relationship null and void between you and God. It just becomes a word. That's why in verses 7 to 8 it says this, when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before we even ask him. The term babbling, it actually refers to pagan practices of just repeating and repeating incantations, thinking that that was going to move the hand of their God. And he's saying, no, that's not what the Lord your God desires of you. And do you guys remember Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal, right? When Elijah goes and 
They're trying to figure out who is God. So Elijah says to them, all right, let's set up two altars. Prophets of Baal, get your altar, put your sacrifice on it. I'll go over here, I'll put an altar, I'll get my sacrifice on it, and we'll call on the name of the Lord. And the one who sucks up the sacrifice, he's God. He's God. Turn with me, please. I want to go through this. Turn with me to 1 Kings 18. Let's read through verses 25 to 29. Let's read what happens here and why I'm going through this, uh, alluding to the word of prayer. 1 Kings 18 says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made, and at noon Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Surely he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted loud, and then he started slashing themselves with swords and spears, which was their custom, so their blood flowed. Midday passed, so they had praying all day, continued frantic prophesying until the evening with their incantations, right? But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Babbling. Babbling. That's what he's showing here. Now jump down to verse 36. Look at, let's look in contrast to Elijah's prayer. At that time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, he recognized who God is. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Gave him the glory. And I am your servant and have done all things according to your command, his will. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Do you see the difference? These guys went all day long, babbling, 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 calling on Baal, because he's not a God. Elijah's prayer that I just read, probably 40 seconds. And what does God do? <laughs> Sucks up the sacrifice and even the water around the offering. Why? Man of God praying concisely, discreetly, that the hand of the Lord will move. All right? And as Pastor Jordan, I got you in the sermon, brought out last week, there are even times. Just be silent before the Lord. He already knows our hearts. He already knows our needs. So we can come silently before God in our prayer closet. And when we do that, it says that the Father knows and he rewards you because he already knows what you're going to ask of him. He knows our hearts. He knows he wants our unsaved loved ones to come into salvation. He knows our financial needs. He knows the healings we need in our bodies. But he wants us to come and acknowledge him, his glory and his greatness. And, some, and he'll answer in his time. I've gotten ahead of myself, but in his time. Family, many of us come from backgrounds. We just repeated prayers because that's what we were supposed to do. Most of the time, you just got into your ritualistic trance and repeated the prayer. You had no idea what you were really saying, and you really weren't communing with God. You were just going through the process, yes? Uh, I believe a lot of people in this church are from the same denominational background I was. Our prayers become empty words and vain words, and they're just part of religious ritual. They have nothing to do with intimacy and communion with God. And let me just give you a couple of pointers, and I should have jockeyed these around. When we come to our prayer time, if we really want to have that communion with him, listen, first of all, the Lord desires that we approach him with a genuine heart. He wants us to come 
and build that intimacy and communion with him. It's a hard issue. Remember, if you study the scriptures in Ephesians, it says like it's a, a marital relationship. The same kind of intimacy that we come to the Lord. He wants us to come with a genuine heart in the, in, in the, in the light of that relationship we have with him. And second, he wants us to give heed to what we say. That we come and we commune with him, converse with him. It doesn't have to be some repetitious religious ritual prayer. No, he wants our words to, what? Say what's in our heart, that we can talk to him as a child talks to his father. Or if we're praying and, uh, and communing with Jesus as a, a brother talks to a brother or a friend to friend. Or the Holy Spirit, our comforter and counselor, say, Holy Spirit, I'm really struggling in this area. I need your strength. But let it be a heartfelt conversation. Amen? And then third, be honest. Be honest. He already knows. And he knows the outcome. And then we have to, what? Respect him in light of that outcome. And the last point is probably the one I should have stressed first. Read and meditate on God's word. Know who he is. Know who we're coming before. Understand where his will lies and according to his word. So when we come, we will pray within his will. We're not going to pray for a pink Cadillac or a new you know, 70-story house. But we come and we pray according to his will. And listen, listen. As we do that, we draw closer to him. We get to know him more. And as we come, we reverence his holiness because we see who he is in his word, that he's the holy God. Should bring us to our knees. But then we can also come to him with our supplication and request, knowing that he's able to do them. So once we come to know who this God is through his word, and meditate and enter into our prayer room with that real knowledge of God, we come before him with reverence, with praise, with holiness. And then we can ask him as a son or a daughter, ask their father, because we know that he's able to do it. Amen? So those are just some pointers. And then one last point. Um, I already spoke about it. That's good. And now as we move forward here in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's going to provide his disciples with an outline of prayer. Please, what we're going to look at this part in Matthew's Gospel is not the repetitive prayer we're supposed to say when we come to prayer. The Lord is giving us an outline of what could, should be included in our prayers. And many of us know it as the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. It is not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's how God, what God wants us to institute in our prayers. If you want the Lord's Prayer, please go to John, the Gospel of John, 14 to 17. Okay? It's the Olivet Discourse where he's praying. But this is really an outline for us as his church. Now, I know this is scary, but look at me. You ready? What you're going to read next in verse 9 and down is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Not because they meditated on the word. And because growing up, that's what we said. That's what we said. It was called the Lord's Prayer, and we said it, whether it be at mealtimes, whether it be in church, whether it be at your marriage, whether it be after confession, you repeated the Lord's Prayer. And it became ritual. Did it mean anything? No. I just repeated it. Ritualistic prayer. Religious prayer. And um, this is what the Lord rebukes. But let me, if, if, and listen. <clears throat> He's rebuking because it's mindless repetition that really leaves no room for intimacy with God. We're just doing it out of what we're supposed to. Church, if, and I have this down. If I was to do a complete teaching on this portion of God's word, the Lord's Prayer, 
we'd be here till five o'clock for the next three weeks, all right? There was so much out there on the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. But really what it comes down to is six petitions. And I'll just give you a quick summary this morning. Maybe in the future I'll do a study on God's Word on that portion of the Our Father. But there are six petitions. The first three concern God. His kingdom, his being, and his will. First of all, our Father who art in heaven. It goes and it acknowledges who God is, that he is the Father of all creation. So we come to our prayers with acknowledging who God is, like I said. Then it says um, this. Second is be kingdom-minded. Thy kingdom come. We are to be kingdom-minded people. Though we live in this world, we're in the world, but we're not of it. We should be kingdom-minded in all our decisions, and all our priorities, that our decisions and everything in our life is going to bring glory and honor to him. And we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. Are you waiting for Christ to return? Are you living as Christ is going to return tonight? That should drive us. Live every day as if he's coming back that day, but live every day if he's not coming back for 100 years so that we're always kingdom-minded and living with him at the root of who we are. Amen? And we also pray trusting. Thy will be done. We can trust his perfect sovereign will. He's sovereign over everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, never-changing. And he wants the best for us, his children. Don't fear this coronavirus. So what? They've had epidemics and pandemics throughout history. They've had earthquakes and volcanoes throughout history. And God forbid that it should amass the globe. Guess where we're going? We're going to glory. Do you know that the Christians in China, right, Mike? They're going in the midst of the virus. And they're witnessing the gospel to those people who've been held in bondage for so many years in communism, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think they were afraid about getting sick? No, they were concerned for the souls of their countrymen. And so should we. Don't be afraid. His perfect will is sovereign. And we can leave everything with him. The other side will understand why. Amen? Praise the Lord. And the last three petitions to our sovereign God have to do with us directly. Look to meet our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. We trust him. We trust him. Amen? Forgive us our sins. And though we're washed in the blood of Christ, let me put it this way, our sins are covered on the cross. Do you understand that, church? But we do sin every day. And if you don't, come up here, I'll pray for you. All right? But we keep short accounts. Why? To keep a clear conscience between us and others and something back. All right? So, and then it goes on and says, is this. I know where I was. All right. We depend on the Holy Spirit and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We lean on the Holy Spirit. God doesn't bring us into temptation. What he, we go to him, we ask, keep me from, help me in. You're going to get tempted every day. I prayed up. I was taking my wife to the hospital the other day and this guy in front of me in the left lane doing 40 miles an hour. I'm like, go, get out of the way. I want to get my wife to the hospital on time, right? And we got there. We got there early. You get there at 6.30, they don't take you until 11 o'clock anyway, so it's great. But um, we got to be prayed up. we got to be prayed up. And lead us down. In other words, Lord, Holy Spirit, give me the strength that when the temptations come my way, through your power, through your word, I'm not going to give in. Amen? We lean on him. And really, I believe these six petitions could be summed up in two. And it's this. God first, the needs of others next. Very simple. It's real simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. 
All right, let's finish up with the last area of hypocrisy the Lord's going to address, and that's the area of fasting. And it's in verse 16a. It says the Lord begins again with not when you fast. I mean, not if you fast, but when you fast. We're called to fast, church. It's something we don't want to hear anymore in the American church because we love our pasta, we love our tacos, we love our Chick-fil-A, whatever you want to say. We love our food. We Americans, especially Italians, have a love affair with food. That's just the way it is. So we don't want to fast. But what he's teaching here is not to look somber. Look at 16b. It states, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others their fasting. And again, let me explain something here. The word fast means to abstain from food. In the original Greek, it's to abstain from food because it's, we can abstain from television, we can abstain from intimacy, we can abstain from the cell phone, God help us. And then, but um, when it comes to food, we, it's affecting our physical body. And it's hard to push it away. We're used to getting up in the morning, having our cup of joe, grabbing something to eat, and throughout the day eating. Looking to what? Be responsive in the spirit. Amen? But no matter what we abstain from, the Lord is saying, don't do it hypocritically. Don't bring attention to yourself. Do it as unto the Lord. Jesus is saying, don't walk around like someone who's in distress. Oh, brother. Oh, sister, what's wrong? I'm fasting. Oh, I'm fasting. Oh, I'm praying that so-and-so will be healed. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Jesus says you're bringing attention to yourself. You know, you know, instead, what, what does he say? Wash your face. Have a joyful countenance. Take a tic-tac so no one can tell you got prayer fasting breath. You know what I mean? Oh, it's disgusting. But really, look, let no one know that you're fasting. You just do it as unto the Lord. So who knows? God knows. And you receive your reward from him and not from men. Amen? Praise God. And I, I have down here, I believe, one of the greatest rewards that we will receive. That's a conjunction with our salvation are these words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What greater reward are there than those two things? To be saved on our way to heaven and to hear when we come before our Savior, well done, come in and enter your rest. Wow! What a to him and not to ourselves so that we come before him that day. And family, let me close with this. We as disciples of Christ must be careful, be present imperative, be on our guard against hypocrisy. And listen carefully. We can never fool God. He knows our heart's motives. Do you hear me? Whether it be our giving, our prayers, our fasting, or any act of righteousness, He knows the motives of our hearts. And listen, oftentimes, we're not going to fool others either, especially those outside the body of Christ. And I say this because they're watching us. They're going to see if the talk we talk is the walk we walk. You hear me? So we better be walking the walk. If we aren't, they'll let you know. Hypocritical Christians can be the greatest stumbling block, listen to me, to the unsaved coming to salvation. They, they're going to say, this guy's full of baloney. I'm not going to put my faith in the God he serves. He's, he's a liar. He's a hypocrite. And it could push them away. Are we going to err? Are we going to stumble? Are we going to sin? Absolutely. But is there a consistency in our walk with Christ that people see? And when we do slip, Ask forgiveness. Say, oh, forgive me, and then move on. All right? And we have to see, is there a consistency in our walk, our talk, our priorities, our lifestyle, our choices that people see as we live to and for Christ? And only you and I know the answer to that question. 
but so do God, and so will others if we're hypocrites. Fool ourselves and be hypocritical to ourselves. Because if we're out there and we're living just like the world, we're only being a hypocrite to ourselves. God wants us to live for him. Amen? Amen? And as we go, the bottom line is, am I living a consistent lifestyle according to the word of God? And is he, Jesus, my first love and considerations in every part of my life? Where am I going? What am I doing? What choices am I making? What are my priorities? Amen? Is Sunday morning more important than the beach? Is Sunday morning more important than apple picking? You hear me? Are my needs of my brothers and sisters more important to me than another dress or another suit in the closet? What are our priorities? How do we view life? Is Jesus my first love? Are we going to live and do as unto him? Always keeping him in the forefront of our choices, our decisions, our priorities. All right? And now as we go into communion, as we come before the Lord's table, let us take a moment and reflect on what we spoke about this morning. The bottom line from all that we studied today is this. The Lord requires or desires integrity of heart. Integrity of heart, do you hear me? And finds hypocrisy repulsive. So this morning as his disciples, let us search that what we do, what we say, how we act and respond will be guided for our love for the Lord and for his glory and not for ours. Let us not be the one that's, that someone says, oh, look at that hypocritical Christian. Let them say, wow, there's the one who's serving God. And you know what? Don't even acknowledge when they're saying it. Be humble so that you're not doing one of these, hey, they noticed. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word this morning. Lord God, in all that we are, in all that we do, in all our responses and actions and motives, Lord, may it be to bring glory and honor to you that we would not touch your glory. Lord God, that as we like you, Lord Jesus, that yes, we would give, we would pray, we would fast, we do acts of righteousness, my God, Lord, so that others would see Christ in us and would come to know you, the living Savior, and that you would receive the glory and honor, Lord, because of the finished work you completed that was there enabling them to come and have eternal life. Lord God, in and through our lives, may we live for you, be like you, reflect you, be your ambassadors and witnesses, so that in all things you are glorified and exalted. Thank you that you, Holy Spirit, indwell within us. Help us to be the men and women of God, never touching your glory, but living a life as unto you, for your edification, your glory, your honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.